This is a Reconstruction radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is The Great Tribulation by David Chilton. Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Copyright 1987 by Dominion Press. Chapter 5. The Coming of the New Covenant. We have seen in the preceding chapters how the message of Jerusalem's approaching desolation is central to the concerns of the New Testament. The book of Revelation is no exception to this. It specifically states in the very first verse, that its concerns are not with the far distant future and the end of the world, but rather with the things that must shortly take place. In the third verse, its readers are warned that the time is near for its prophecies to be fulfilled. Both of these statements are repeated at the end of the book as well. See Revelation 22, 6 and 10. And its prophecies are clear, clearly, though often in symbolic form, directed against the great city where the Lord was crucified, Revelation eleven eight, see following, fourteen eight, sixteen nineteen, seventeen eighteen. Like the rest of the New Testament, the book of Revelation follows Christ's example in foretelling the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. seventy. As I have explained at length in my commentary, the days of vengeance, Saint John wrote Revelation in the standard biblical form of the covenant lawsuit delivered by the Hebrew prophets, God's attorneys for the prosecution, against the disobedient nation of Israel. Through a myriad of symbols adapted from the Old Testament prophecies, St. John set forth two major points. First, Israel had irrevocably broken her covenant with the Lord. Second, by His incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus Christ had brought in a new and final covenant, infallibly guaranteed by His victory over sin and death. The foundational image of this in the book of Revelation is shown in the first vision of the court of heaven, chapters 4 and 5. St. John saw the Lord sitting on the throne holding a book that was sealed with seven seals, indicating to his audience that it was some sort of testament, and written on the front and on the back. Any Christian reader of the first century would immediately have understood the significance of this, for it is based on the description of the Ten Commandments, the two tablets of the testimony, which were duplicate copies of the law, were inscribed on both front and back, Exodus 32:15. An analog of this is found in the suzerainty treaties of the ancient Near East. A victorious king, the suzerain, would impose a treaty covenant upon the conquered king, the vassal, and all those under the vassal's authority. Two copies of the treaty were drawn up, as in modern contracts, and each party would place his copy of the contract in the house of his God as a legal document testifying to the transaction. In the case of Israel... Of course, the Lord was both suzerain and God, so both copies of the covenant were placed in the tabernacle, Exodus 25.16 and 21.40.20, Deuteronomy 10.2, 20, 
The idea of covenant is thus central to the message of Revelation. St. John's prophecy is presented from the outset as part of the canon of Holy Scripture, primarily written to be read in the liturgy. 1-3. Tabernacle imagery is used in the opening doxology. 1-4-5. And the church is declared to be constituted as the new kingdom of priests, as Israel had been at Sinai. 1-6. The theme of the book, stated in 1-7, is Christ's coming in the glory cloud, then, almost immediately, St. John uses three words that almost always occur throughout the Bible in connection with covenant-making activity, spirit, day, and voice. One ten. The following vision of Christ as the glorious high priest, 1, 12-20, combines many images from the Old Testament, the cloud, the day of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, the Creator and Universal Sovereign, the Son of Man, Second Adam, the Conqueror of the Nations, the Possessor of the Church, all of which are concerned with the prophecies of the coming of the New Covenant. The vision is followed by Christ's own message to the churches, styled as a recounting of the history of the Covenant, chapters 2 and 3. Then in chapter 4, St. John sees the throne supported by the cherubim, and surrounded by the royal priesthood, all singing God's praises to the accompaniment of Sinai-like lightning and voices and thunder. We should not be surprised to find this magnificent array of covenant-making imagery culminating in the vision of a testament, treaty, document, written on front and back, in the hand of him who sits on the throne. The book is nothing less than the testament of the resurrected and ascended Christ, the New Covenant. But the coming of the New Covenant implies the passing away of the Old Covenant and the judgment of apostate Israel. As we have briefly noted, the biblical prophets spoke in terms of the covenantal treaty structure, acting as prosecuting attorneys on behalf of the divine suzerain, bringing covenant lawsuit against Israel. The imagery of the document inscribed on both sides is also used in the prophecy of Ezekiel, on which St. John has modeled his prophecy. Ezekiel tells of receiving a scroll containing a list of judgments against Israel. Then he said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to the sons of Israel, to a rebellious people who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. Then I looked, behold, a hand was extended to me, and lo, a book was in it. When he had spread it out before me, it was written on the front and back, and written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. Ezekiel 2, 3-10 As St. John sees the opening of the new covenant, therefore he will also see the curses of the old covenant fulfilled on the apostate covenant people. This conclusion becomes clearer as we look at the overall movement of the prophecy. The seven seals of the book are broken in order to reveal the book's contents, but the breaking of the seventh seal initiates the sounding of the seven trumpets, 8, 1-2. The final vision of the trumpets section closes with a horrif horrifying scene of a great vintage in which human grapes of wrath are trampled and the whole land is flooded with a torrent of blood, 
chapter 14, 19 through 20. This leads directly into the final section of Revelation, in which St. John sees the blood from the winepress being poured out from the seven chalices of wrath, chapter 16, 1 through 21. It would seem, therefore, that we are meant to understand the seven chalices as the, con- the content of the seventh trumpet, the last woe, to fall upon the land. See following. 8, 13, 9, 12, 11, 14 through 15, and 12, 12. All of these, seals, trumpets, and chalices, are the contents of the seven-sealed book, the New Covenant. But there is a crisis. St. John finds that no one in all of creation, in heaven or on the earth, or under the earth, is able or worthy to open the book, or even to look into it. No one can fulfill the conditions required of the mediator of the new covenant. All previous mediators, Adam, Moses, David, and the rest, had ultimately proved inadequate for the task. No one could take away sin and death, for all have sinned, and continually fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. The sacrifice of animals could not really take away sins, for such a thing is impossible, Hebrews 10.4. And the high priest who offered up the sacrifices was a sinner himself, beset with weaknesses. Hebrews 5, 1-3 and 7, 27. And having to be replaced after his death. Hebrews 7, 23. No one could be found to guarantee a better covenant. With the prophetic yearning and sadness of the old covenant church, St. John began to weep greatly. The new covenant had been offered by the one sitting on the throne, but no one was worthy to act on behalf of both God and man to ratify the covenant. The seven-sealed book would remain locked. Immediately, St. John is comforted by an elder, who says, as it reads literally, Stop weeping. Behold, he has conquered. The church thus preaches the gospel to St. John. And it seems as if the elder is so excited about his message that he blurts out the climax before he even explains who has conquered. He goes on to describe Christ, the conqueror, as the lion from the tribe of Judah, the strong and powerful fulfillment of Jacob's ancient prophecy to his fourth son. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. Genesis 49, 9-10 It was King David, the conquering lion of Judah of the Old Covenant, to whom God revealed both the plan of the temple First Chronicles 28, 11-19, and the plan of the everlasting covenant, the charter of humanity, by which the coming priest king would bring the blessing of Abraham to all nations. Second Samuel 7, 18-19, First Chronicles 17, 16-27, Psalms 16 and 110, Acts 2, 25 through 36. 
At last, David's greater son came and conquered, establishing everlasting dominion and opening the covenant, embodying and fulfilling all its promises. He is the one to whom it belongs. Christ is also called the root of David, a strange expression to our way of thinking. We can more easily understand Isaiah's term, a shoot from the stem of Jesse, Isaiah 11.1. As a descendant of Jesse and David, Jesus could be called a branch, Jeremiah 23.5 and Zechariah 3.8. But how could he be called the root? Our perplexity originates in our non-biblical views of how history works. We are accustomed to thinking of history as if it were a cosmic Rube Goldberg machine. Trip a lever at one end, and a series of domino-like thingamajigs and what's-its bang into each other, at long last producing a whatchamacallit at the far end of the machine. By pure cause and effect, each event causes other events in direct chronological succession. Now, this is true, but it is not the whole truth. In fact, take alone and autonomously, it is not true at all, for such a thesis is evolutionary in its assumptions rather than biblical. History is not simply a matter of the past causing the future. It is also true that the future causes the past. A simple illustration might help us understand this. Let's say someone finds you packing a sack lunch on a warm Saturday morning and asks the reason for it. You answer, because I'm going to have a picnic at the park today. What has happened? In a sense, the future, the planned picnic, has determined the past. Because you wanted a picnic at the park, you then planned a lunch. Logically, the picnic preceded and caused the making of the lunch, even though it followed chronologically. In the same way, God desired to glorify himself in Jesus Christ. Therefore, he created Jesse and David and all the other ancestors of Christ's human nature, in order to bring bring his son into the world. The root of David's very existence was the son of David, Jesus Christ. The effect determined the cause. The Lord Jesus Christ is thus presented in the most radical way possible as the center of all history, the divine root as well as the branch, the beginning and the end, Alpha and Omega, And it is as the conquering lion and the determining root that he has prevailed so as to open the book, the new covenant, and its seven seals. Interestingly, however, when St. John turns to see the one who is described in this way, he sees a lamb standing before the throne. The point of the text is not that Jesus is lamb-like in the sense of being Gentile, sweet, or mild. Christ is called a lamb not because he is nice, but in view of his work. He is the lamb that was slain, who takes away the sin of the world. John 1, 29. Thus, the center of history is the finished sacrificial work of Christ. The foundation for his mediatorial kingship, Christ as the lion, is his mediatorial atonement, Christ as the lamb. It is because of his sacrifice that he has been exalted to the place of supreme rule and authority. Christ has attained victory 
through his redemptive suffering and death on our behalf. This means that Christ's understanding of creation and history originates not from history itself, but from the fact that he is both the creator and redeemer of the world. Thus, on the basis of his person, his work, and his exalted position as Savior and world ruler, Jesus Christ ascended to heaven, stepped forward to the throne of his Father, and took the new covenant out of the right hand of him who sat upon the throne. Revelation 5.7 We have already noted how the prophet Daniel described it. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Daniel seven, thirteen through 14 The central message of the Bible is salvation through Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant. Apart from his work, through which he acquired and eternally possesses the covenant, there is no hope for mankind. He has overwhelmingly conquered so as to open the treaty of the great king, and through him we too are more than conquerors. In the closing verses of Revelation 5, St. John goes on to show the church's response to all this in worship, praising God for the outcome of Christ's work. Their new song, exults in the fact that Christ has purchased his people out of the nations, not only to redeem them from sin, but to enable them to fulfill God's original dominion mandate for man. As the second Adam, Christ sets before his new creation the task Adam forfeited. This time, however, on the unshakable foundation of his death, resurrection, and ascension, Salvation has a purpose, a saving to as well as a saving from. Christ has made his people to be kings and priests to our God, and has guaranteed their destiny. Thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Revelation 10 This shows us the direction of history. The redeemed of the Lord, already a nation of kingly priests, are moving toward the complete dominion God had planned as His original program for man. In Adam, it had been lost. Jesus Christ, the second Adam, has redeemed us and restored us to our royal priesthood, so that we will reign upon the earth. Through the work of Christ, the definitive victory over Satan has been won. We are promised increasing victories and increasing rule and dominion as we bring the gospel and law of the great king to fruition throughout the world. The church in St. John's Day was about to experience a time of severe testing and persecution. Already they were seeing what, in a sane age, could scarcely be imagined. A union between Israel and the evil beast of the pagan Roman Empire? These Christians needed to understand history as something not ruled by chance, or evil men, or even the devil, 
but ruled instead from God's throne by Jesus Christ. They needed to see that Christ was reigning now, that he had already wrested the world from Satan's grasp, and that even now all things in heaven and earth were bound to acknowledge him as king. They needed to see themselves in the true light, not as forgotten troops in a lonely outpost fighting a losing battle, but as kings and priests already, waging war and overcoming, predestined to victory, with the absolute assurance of conquest and dominion with the high king over the earth. They needed the biblical philosophy of history, that all of history, created and controlled by God's personal and total government, is moving inexorably toward the universal dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ. The new and final age of history has arrived. The new covenant has come. Behold, He has conquered. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.